The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, yesterday evening we uh, kicked off our time together. Perhaps there were a few of you who uh, didn't make it through the uh, snow or had commitments yesterday evening, so that you're only with us, uh, arrived perhaps late last night or this morning. But... Um, We kicked off our series for this weekend, God's Mountain Men, by looking at the significance and the importance of the Sermon on the Mount and Christ as the greater Moses going up onto the mountain and sitting down his disciples and teaching them. And I was emphasizing the importance, the power, the relevance of this, our calling as as God's people, as men, and uh, how the intention of what Jesus was doing here was to lay out a kingdom charter, a manifesto, if you will, for his people. Let me just uh, pray before we begin this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, But before we come to that, I want to turn to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42, and I'm going to read verse 1 through 9. Isaiah 42, verse 1 through 9. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. This is a passage about Christ and about his work in and through his people. The coastlands wait for his law, justice being brought to the Gentiles. He's not going to be discouraged till he has established these things in the earth. And we have reference there to the covenant, to the covenant that is made. And it's the covenant law which Jesus is concerned with in Matthew chapter 5. 
Let's just look at verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In the first part of this chapter, chapter 5, we have a description of the Christian life. And because I strongly suspect that you are not only all familiar with it, but you've heard many sermons on the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, that's those who are mourning over sin. Blessed are the meek, that's the bridled strong, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice, they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have a description of the character of the Christian man. But what I want to come to this morning, because obviously we can't cover uh, two, three, uh, three whole chapters in our four or five sessions together, I want to come to what the function or the purpose then of the Christian man is within society. We know we are to be men who, have, who are poor in spirit, that is humble before the Lord, who have humbled ourselves. We know we are to be men who are men of repentance, not as a one-off thing, but who live lives of, conf- lives of confession, repentance, and faithfulness. We know we are to be meek men, not weak men. Meekness is not weakness. The meek are those who, like a bridled, powerful horse, they have brought their strength. God has brought their strength, has tamed their strength, so that now all that raw strength that was there in that wild horse is now directed, tamed, and useful for God's purpose. It's all very well being strong, but, unless you, but if that's unwieldy uh, uh, and uh, unrestrained and undirected strength, it's useless. But when it's harnessed, then it can be put to a purpose. That's what meekness means. Moses was described, by the way, as the meekest man on the face of the earth. Blessed are the pure in, uh, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We are to be men of mercy if we want to receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who are holy, righteous, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. I think I missed one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice. Same word in the Greek. Men who long for righteousness and justice. Those men, they shall be satisfied. Now the word blessed literally means satisfied as God is satisfied. Some translations render it happy. That's inadequate. It's part of the meaning, but it's not all of the meaning. It's to be truly satisfied as God is satisfied. So here we have this picture of the Christian man that's given in this classic section we're so familiar with called the Beatitudes. And 
What we're now told by our Lord is the function or the purpose of such men in society. The prophet Isaiah says, we've read it in Isaiah 42, I, Yahweh, have called you for a righteous purpose. This is verse 6 of Isaiah 42. And I will hold you by your hand. I will keep you and appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. Much of uh, what passes for uh, teaching for the church today is often uh, trivial. And uh, I think as men in particular, we should have low tolerance for triviality. Things that are merely trivial. Uh, It reminds me of the story of a family whose house caught fire when I think sometimes about what passes for Uh, the purpose of the church today where a house is is caught fire and uh, the family are are trying to get out of the house they're abandoning the house because it's burning down they get the children out of the bedrooms they're running towards the front door the husband turns around because his wife has stopped and she's straightening a picture in the hallway Uh, in case the firemen come in and notice that everything isn't all straight now sometimes it's as though the church is caught up with straightening pictures in a burning house and we're not as concerned with the fact that the house is burning down now I said yesterday that what we have here in Matthew 5 6 and 7 is the Lord Jesus expounding the law of God We've had a description of the Christian character in the beginning there, in the Beatitudes. And we are called to the purpose Christ shows us immediately, its nature and character here. You are the salt of the earth, is the first thing. The salt of the earth. Salt is a preservative, and uh, we also use it for seasoning. And we're told if it loses its saltiness, it is worthless and only good to be trampled underfoot. Now, interestingly, pure salt can't actually lose its saltiness. Pure salt isn't actually, it can't deteriorate. It doesn't lose its savor. Now, the common salt of the time that Jesus was speaking here, the common salt, the Dead Sea salt, was contaminated it was compromised it was contaminated with a mineral called gypsum for you geologists out there and it has a very flat taste it's ineffective as a preservative in fact the only thing that this salt gypsum was good for was for keeping down the weeds or footpaths I don't know whether you do this in, uh, in your garden or you know when you're trying to uh, keep the weeds down during the summer uh, I do, I throw, I throw salt on the pathway up to the house because it's a good way of killing everything there so that you just leave you know, your stones intact and you haven't got dandelions coming up through and so forth. Well, this is what Jesus is saying here, that as God's people, we're to be uncontaminated. Pure salt can't lose its savor. We're not to be compromised. We're not to be tolerant towards evil and unrighteousness now notice I didn't say we're not to be merciful (laughs) there is a difference between mercy and tolerance the toleration of something and mercy 
towards something. It's not that we're not to be men of grace and mercy, but we are not to be men who tolerate compromise. Because if we do, we cannot fulfill God's calling upon our lives. A polluted church is then without purity and it's only good to be cast aside. And if you read the book of Revelation and the letters to the churches, this is what our Lord was concerned with for the churches at the time. One uh, American commentator has put this very powerfully. He says, intolerance is inescapable. Intolerance is inescapable. If we are Christians and abide by scripture, we will be intolerant toward murder, theft, adultery, false witness, and other offenses against God's order and oppression of godly men. If, on the other hand, we are sinners and lawbreakers by nature, we will be intolerant of God and his people. Intolerant of godly laws and restraints precisely because we tolerate and love sin. Our Lord stated the issues clearly. No man can serve two masters. Those who hate God want to eliminate him and everything which is an aspect of God's law and order and word from their universe. They are savagely and bitterly intolerant. In other words, what you tolerate says a great deal about you. It identifies your loyalty and love and it classifies your nature clearly. Interesting statement in an age which prizes the virtue of tolerance uh, above all else. Tolerance redefined as not uh, tolerating that which is objectionable for the purposes of civility, but regarding all things as equally valid. The Christian church, Jesus is telling us here, God's people, his covenant people, is a preservative. Now what does the necessity for a preservative presuppose? It presupposes that the world, Christ is telling us, tends toward putrefication. Without the renewing effect of God's people, the rottenness of a rebellious world is manifest. It's like meat that's gone bad. You ever opened up the fridge and you're trying to make yourself a a sandwich for lunch because your wife hasn't made you pack lunch for work? Uh, or you're trying to make yourself some supper because she's out for the evening or whatever, and you pull out the, the, the ham from the thing, and, and it's, it's an old one. And it stinks, right? If you leave a fridge, and you, or you, or you forget, you go on vacation, and you forget to empty the fridge or whatever before you go, you've left for a month, you come back, you open the fridge, and it stinks. Because... It tends to putrefication left to itself. Now this is what Jesus is saying to us, is that the world, without Christ and his word and his people in the world, as a light, as a testimony, as salt and light, it tends to putrefication. I'm going to illustrate that for you briefly this morning in a couple of ways that are very current. Right now we have a lesbian premier in Ontario, in case you hadn't noticed and I have, uh, in, uh, at Westminster, we have uh, had a couple in our church, uh, uh, quite a, an elderly couple now, seniors, who have been working with the, Toronto, uh, the Children's Aid Society for many, many years, fostering children, trying to be salt and light, uh, caring for short-term care, sometimes long-term care, years 
of, of babies, children that have no place to go, no home. But recently they were presented with a new document by the CAS, a new policy document, new requirements for all those uh, fostering for the CAS. And the Children's Aid Society of Toronto document is called Out and Proud. And I want to read a bit to you. Sexual equity education glossary of terms now being used to describe various sexualities and genders. Here they are. Gay, homosexual, lesbian, bisexual, bi, bicurious, heterosexual, pansexual, polysexual, omnisexual, queer, MSM, that is men who have sex with men, WSW, women who have sex with women, transsexual, transgender, intersex, gender independent, gender non-conforming, gender variant, gender divergent, gender diverse, gender dissonant, gender dysphoric, gender distressed, cisgendered, cissexual, Gender conforming, gender bending, gender blending, gender queer, gender fluid, cross-dressing, trans man, FTM, F2M, that's female to male transsexual, trans woman, that's MTF and, and M2F, male to female transsexual, questioning, and LGBTIQ, etc., etc., etc. This is now the descriptions that are current in our culture for the human person. I'm not making any of this up. I can give you the whole policy document. And these are listed as oppressive attitudes towards this. Homophobia, biphobia, heterosexism, heterocentrism, heterosexual privilege, transphobia, genderism, internalized homophobia, biophobia, biphobia, transphobia, heteronormativity, and LBTIQ oppression. Chapter 13 is supports families to affirm their children, to accept and affirm, this is the requirement, their children who are, and it specifically states on page 205, the goal. The goal is to ensure that all children and youth, especially those who may be gender independent or LGBTIQ, have families or support systems who can accept and affirm who they are and who can effectively support them in order to increase positive outcomes. In, uh, the summary statement is to encourage all families to be affirming, to value their child's true self over social expectations, and to relax rigid gender or sexual identity expectations, encourage families with LGBTIQ children to love them for who they are, teach families to advocate, support the child or youth to create an alternate or chosen family, and other people who can be, with other people who can be affirming, positive and supportive, especially if their family cannot or will not not do these things. Policy document given to all of those fostering in the CAS. And uh, they came to me to say, we need you to help us write a letter of resignation after years and years and years of serving these children. That's what's happening now in our childcare work of welfare in the state today. And then I want to uh, give you another illustration from the TDSB. And I've got some slides for you because I wanted to illustrate this. Have we got those ready? Can I have slide number one? This is a uh, poster campaign for all Toronto schools, sanctioned by the TDSB for posters to be put up throughout the schools in Toronto. Love has no gender, safe, a positive space. You can see here all the various images of what love 
is meant to look like. Can I have the next slide, please? A safe and positive space. We're here, we're queer, we're in your school. The uh, little fishies there are self-explanatory. Uh, next one, please. Positive space 101. Here's the uh, indoctrination speak. Language hurts. Statements such as that's so gay are derogatory. Gender is complex. Masculine and feminine are labels, not definitions. Unwanted, touching, sexist jokes, spreading rumors or name-calling are not okay. Be sensitive, not everyone is straight. Notice how they're mixing genuine qualities of respect with uh, their uh, queer agenda. Queering, by the way, is their term. It just means to blur all normal distinctions. Take action, speak out, against, uh, speak out and speak up against sexist, homophobic, transphobic and heterosexist behavior. Question your assumptions. Next slide, please. The gender box secret. People don't fit in boxes. It's okay to be yourself. Tell everyone. And uh, for every girl who is tired of acting weak uh, when she is strong, there is a boy who is tired of appearing strong when he feels vulnerable. For every boy who is uh, burdened with the constant expectation of knowing everything, there is a girl tired of people not trusting her intelligence. For every girl who is tired of being called oversensitive, there is a boy who fears to be gentle to weep. For every boy for whom competition is the only way to prove his masculinity, there is a girl who is called, who is called, can anybody read that? Non-feminine when she, take my glasses off, when she competes. For every girl who throws out her easy-bake oven, there is a boy who wishes to find one. For every boy struggling not to let advertising dictate his desires, there is a girl facing the industry's attack on her self-esteem. For every girl who takes a step towards her liberation, there is a boy who finds the way to freedom a little easier. And the word liberation there is critical, of course, because liberation, female liberation today, involves, of its essence, abortion. And so here you have a subtle attempt to gently indoctrinate away from the idea that there are any real distinctions between masculinity and femininity. Next slide, please. And here they are. This is part of the poster campaign. This is an effort to show that there are supposedly transgendered cross-dressing children. These are just little kids. Look at this boy here in the middle, dressed as a girl with the orange wig. This isn't just fun. This isn't just a dress-up day. This is a process of indoctrination that there aren't even norms of dress for boys and girls. Now, I don't need to remind you what God's law says even about that, that the man who seeks to make his appearance that of a woman and vice versa. When we respect each other for who we are, there isn't anything we can't do, is the tagline at the bottom. Is there another slide or was that my last one? That's it. Thank you. Now that's just the poster campaign. Let me tell you what the TDSB equitable and inclusive schools policy document says in an FAQ section, frequently asked questions today. Here's the first question. Should schools send notes or permission slips home before starting any classroom work about curricular issues that may involve discussions about discrimination and harassment? Answer, no. 
TDSB Equity Foundation Statement and Commitments to Equity Policy Implementation states that each school has a responsibility to education that reflects the diversity of its students and their life experiences, singling out one group or topic area as too controversial, and listen, and depending upon parent, guardian, caregiver discretion, shifts this responsibility from the school to parents and fosters a poisoned environment. So the authority is with the school, not with parents, and any attempt to shift responsibility for the character and nature of education to the parent is to create a poisoned environment. Next question, should schools send notes or permission slips home before starting any classroom work on LGBTQ issues? Answer, no. If a school treats the topic of sexual orientation or anti-homophobia work differently from the range of other curriculum topics, this could be construed as discriminatory practice. Anti-homophobia education is mandated in all our schools through the Equity Foundation Statement and Commitments to Equity Policy Implementation and Human Rights Policy and Gender-Based Violence Prevention Policy. In other words, this is policy throughout the system. Next question. Can a parent have their child accommodated out of human rights education based on religious grounds? That is this education. Answer, no. Religious accommodation in the TDSB is carried out in the larger context of secular education. While the TDSP works to create a school system free from religious discrimination, freedom is not absolute. The TDSB will limit practices or conduct in its schools that may put public safety, health or human rights and, and freedoms of others at risk. The TDSB will limit practices or conducts in, school, in its schools that are in violation of its other policies. For example, if a parent asks for his or her child to be exempted from any discussion of LGBTQ family issues as a religious accommodation, this request cannot be made because it violates human rights policy. Furthermore, this is consistent with the ideal that human rights education is essentially is essential strategy in preventing human rights abuses. Next question, can teachers, can teachers seek accommodation from teaching materials that may contradict their religious beliefs? Answer, no. The TDSB is part of the public secular education system. Teachers are equally responsible for delivering curriculum created by the provincial Ministry of Education and to supporting the TDSB policies which more accurately reflect the educational needs of our student population. The delivery of curriculum related to human rights issues must be consistent with the Ontario Human Rights Code, the TDSB Human Rights Policy and the Equity Foundation Statement and Commitment to Equity Policy Implementation. Failure to do so is contrary to the obligations outlined for teachers on page 4 of the TDSB Human Rights Policy. Teachers refusing to create an inclusive classroom that is safe and supportive for all students would create a poisoned learning environment. End quote. In other words, there's three things very clear. One, school authority trumps parental authority, and parents who don't support sexual agenda, the sexual agenda are poison. Second, human rights trumps religious rights. These human rights are what they determine are human rights. And third, Christian teachers are required to teach contrary to their beliefs, irrespective of what they think. Now, why did I cite that for you? Without salt and light, everything tends to putrefication. Without the influence of God's people, 
without the transforming work of God's people, everything tends to putrefaction. And that is why we're called to be salt and light in the world. It's not just a a, a limited statement about how you and I are to be kind to our neighbors and put out the elderly lady's bin at the bottom of the lane of her driveway when she can't do it. It is that in every aspect of our lives, we are to be making known, declaring, and living faithfully God's word in its fullness. There was a great deal that was expected by thinkers at the beginning of the at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. If you read the intelligentsia, the intellectuals at the beginning of the last century, it is now actually laughable and pathetic in the light of what actually took place in the 20th century. Social biological evolution was meant to be taking us into a golden age. That's what they told us. Instead, what we had was the bloodiest century in history. We had tyranny and genocide and murder and total war on a scale never before known, and we have had rapid social, economic, and spiritual decline. I read a series of essays recently in a book called I Believe, which was looking at uh, some of these essays from various thinkers uh, prior to the Second World War and then just after the Second World War, and it's interesting to read their postscripts as they were given an opportunity to revise in the 50s what they were saying in the 20s and 30s. And largely they they discussed their utter bewilderment at what had happened and suggest that the only solution is total statism. By total statism they mean a total communist order. And I need to tell you now, if you're not aware of this, that the dominant uh, view of the intellectual class today throughout our universities is the new Marxism. It's a new world order, It's a belief in the new oneness of humankind based on these kind of ideas and policies, the great equalizing of all things economically, spiritually, socially, and so forth. And so the goal is international human rights, international law, international monetary fund, international banks, everything in terms of one order. Left to itself, the world festers. As the prophet Isaiah said, the coastlands are waiting for his law. That the servant king, the Gentiles, are waiting for him. He's coming, Jesus Christ. And now we are sent as his people. Now when we look at, let's look at a quick historical example of this in scripture. What happened when the, after the fall and the first murder, Cain slew his brother Abel. What happens there in the book of Genesis is that we see, we're told that the world begins to slip into deeper and deeper darkness. It gets worse and worse. Man's rebellion gets worse and worse till God says he will not strive with man's rebellion forever and he sends his judgment upon the world. He sends the flood. Sodom stands as another paradigmatic example of a putrefying world and God's judgment upon it. We are to be unlike the world in that Salt is distinct from what it seasons and preserves. A small amount of salt, you will have noticed, is very quickly detectable in 
a large medium. If you put a little bit of salt into water, you immediately detect it. I remember as a boy, my mum, uh, I don't know how it happened, was making a cake, and she accidentally put salt in instead of sugar into the cake mix. I remember taking a bite of that cake still to this day. Salt is uh, a powerful, immediately detectable substance. A small amount of it has a great effect. Salt also acts as an antiseptic. So, you know, when, we, uh, we, we, when we're at the beach with our kids, if it's at the coast, salt water, not a lake. When I was, when I was a boy, if you had cuts and bruises on yourself, you, mum and dad send you into the sea. Go get in the water. And you put salt on... Uh, salt gargle salt water for various problems because salt is also an antiseptic it heals festering wounds it flavors what is bland and insipid now the Christian church Jesus is saying we as men of God are to be all of these things without the Christian living out this life obedience to his every word the world becomes infected insipid putrid and placed under judgment and this is the meaning of Romans 1 you should reflect on Romans 1 on a regular basis how are we doing how are we doing well I don't want to bore you with the research on these matters but it is sometimes useful to look at what uh, has been turned up I mentioned one such survey yesterday but in uh, 2010, the Barner Group did a portrayal of how the religious environment in North America is morphing into something new. And this is uh, just what they found in uh, four simple headings here. First, the Christian church is becoming less theologically literate, they found. So that universally known truths about Christianity are now unknown mysteries to a large and growing share of North Americans. Only a minority of adults, for example, now associate Easter with the resurrection of Jesus. Fewer find that their faith is the focal point of their life or integrated into every aspect of their existence. A growing number believe the Holy Spirit a symbol of God's presence and power, but not a living entity. The two generations that follow the boomers, that's the busters and the mosaics, who are now ascending into majorities in the uh, Christian church today, uh, as my parents' generation are getting older and are not uh, usually now in the positions of major influence, find that there is a theological free-for-all encroaching on the churches nationwide, and that it is predicted that this generation and the one following will be a season of unparalleled theological inconsistency the second thing Christians are becoming more ingrown and less outreach oriented they found Christians are becoming more spiritually isolated from non-Christians than was true a decade ago less than one third of Christians plan to invite anyone to join them at a church event during the Easter season teenagers are less inclined to discuss Christianity with their friends than was true in the past most of the people who become Christians these days do so in response to a personal crisis, but most Americans are unimpressed with the contributions Christians and churches have made to society over the past few years. The third thing, the postmodern insistence on tolerance is winning over the Christian church. 
Our biblical illiteracy and lack of spiritual confidence has caused North Americans to avoid making discerning choices for fear of being labeled judgmental. The result is a church has become tolerant of a vast array of morally and spiritually dubious behaviors and philosophies. This increased leniency is made possible by very limited accountability that now occurs within the body of Christ. There are fewer and fewer issues that Christians believe churches should be dogmatic about. The idea of love has been redefined to mean the absence of conflict and confrontation, as if there are no moral absolutes worth fighting for. That may not be surprising in a church in which a minority believes that there are moral absolutes dictated by Scripture. Finally, the influence of Christianity on culture and individuals' lives, they found, is largely invisible. The most influential aspect of Christianity in America is how believers do or do not implement their faith in public and in private. The uh, mosaics are those born between 1984 and 2002. How many mosaics we got? If you're a mosaic, put your hand up. You're born since 1984? Okay, quite a few of you. And then the baby busters are those born between 65 and 83. How many of those we got? Put your hands up. Quite a lot. And then the boomers are those born before uh, 1965. Confess it, put your hands up. There's quite a few of you as well. <laughs> so, here's the point that our Lord is making. As goes the church, so goes the world. As goes the church, so goes the world. Why should we be shocked by educational policy, by lesbian Ontario premiers, by the CAS and its policies and the way our culture is going, if what Barner has discovered is true about the church? Why would we expect the world to actually be any different? Jesus tells us here that the Christian life isn't a set of pious ideals just for my personal enrichment. It's God's own preservative in the earth. If our culture is rotting, it's actually because we have polluted and compromised the faith. I know that's hard to hear, but I think it's true. And I'm part of the, I'm part of, I'm not distancing myself from it. I'm part of the situation. In times of revived Christian faith, the church has transformed her environment. When you think about what happened in the 18th century in the United Kingdom, for example, and you think of names like John Wesley and George Whitfield and William Wilberforce, and those who brought massive transformation in the 18th century, the transformations were so incredible that the country was practically unrecognizable a hundred years later. And what was birthed out of that was the, perhaps the greatest missionary sending movement in the history of the world. It's actually the people who were reached in places like Southeast Asia and in Africa today that are now coming back to us who were reached by our forebears who were the product of the awakening in America and in, uh, and in, uh, and in the UK who were then sent... Uh, who were sent to these far-flung places to preach the gospel, those people are now coming back to us to correct our bishops and straighten out our churches. Church of England would be nothing today if it were not for the African and Asian evangelical church. 
Think of how a true Christian can be a preserve, can be a light, a presence among non-believers. It even changes the tone of a conversation. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this in his commentary on the, Beatitude, on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, though the church makes her great pronouncements about war and politics, the average man is not affected. But if you have a man working at a bench who is a true Christian, whose life has been saved and transformed by the Holy Spirit, it does affect others around him. And this is why we need to not be discouraged when we reflect on, my purpose is not to discourage you this weekend, quite the contrary. A little salt can and will affect the great mass of things. You take a jug of water, you sprinkle salt in there, it's immediately detectable. A small amount of salt is immediately detectable. It's a critical quality of our lives that preserves and seasons the world. Chrysostom, one of the great church fathers in the early centuries of the church, said Christians then are, he says, called to restore the whole created order to its original succulence, which has degenerated into rottenness. That's his comments on the Sermon on the Mount. That's how the early church saw its calling. Not to hide away in its own little cloister, not to develop an evangelical monasticism, but to season the whole world. The second thing Jesus said is that we're not just salt of the earth, we are the light of the world. Verse 14, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Not read your good intentions, not hear your pious words, but see your good works. See how we actually live. Just as salt implies a distinction from the medium in which it is placed, so Christians as light presupposes what? Darkness presupposes a context of darkness. Now, for several centuries, we in the West have been boasting about what we've called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment. Do you know what that Enlightenment was? It's interesting how men label periods of history. The so-called Enlightenment, basically since the Renaissance, but especially during the 18th century, the Enlightenment was a recovery of classical Greek philosophy. And it led to an unremitting attack upon the authority of Scripture in the history of the Western world. You see, the Dark Ages was the high medieval period the medieval period and the high medieval period, which actually a Christian era. It wasn't a perfect era, but it was a tremendous era in many, many respects. The Reformation, of course, was central and very important in responding to what was going on in the Renaissance in terms of saying, okay, you're going to go back to your sources, we're going back to ours. We're going back to the Bible, to the Word of God, and we're going to apply it. And what happened? Despite the Renaissance... Despite all that humanistic resurgence, the Reformation produced transformation throughout Europe. Massive transformation. And yet they were, relatively speaking, a poor, persecuted minority. 
John Knox goes to Geneva to study under Calvin, experiences the applied word of God in Geneva, comes away saying, this is the greatest school of Christ since the Apostle Paul. In a couple of years, Scotland has a Calvinist parliament, has instituted universal Christian education, and has laws passed in terms of God's word. It steadily then becomes, he becomes the father of Puritanism, and the Scots become the greatest missionary sending nation the world's ever seen. This is actually history. Now the so-called enlightenment, which attacked uh, God's word, attacked the authority of scripture, has led us into an existential abyss today. We are only now seeing finally the full fruit of the so-called enlightenment, which rejected the authority of God's word. We're now at this, what we've just seen, is a product of the end game of the Enlightenment, progressivism. And you know the problem with progressivism? There is no logical stopping point. Because it isn't progress from anything particular towards a preordained or understood goal. There isn't a goal in view. The goal, if there is one, is only total lawlessness. The utter destruction of everything that pertains to God and his word. That is the goal. So if you're saying to yourself, gosh, it's bad, can't get any worse than that, wait and see. You wait and see. You boomers here, can you even have conceived a time when you were growing up at 12, 13, 14 years old, when you were still singing the national anthem and still reciting the Lord's Prayer in the school, that those posters could be stuck up in a civilized culture? There is no logical stopping point to putrefication until actually complete disintegration. Right? Something rots until finally it disappears. And actually that is what is going to happen. When God judges something, he's sweeping it aside. What's he going to replace it with? The true light which has come into the world. St. Paul reminds us that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And these self-styled intellectuals who claim to be the light are not the light. We, we, we are surrounded today by self-styled intellectual elites, social planners who believe that you are the plebs, that we men are imbeciles, and that's how the media portrays us. You look at any sitcom today, men are imbeciles. They're fools. They are objects of laughter and derision. There is no such thing as true manhood, true masculinity. And Christ, as the true man, who is our model, is Laugh to scorn. Well, it's not the self-styled intellectuals who are the light. Actually, that's darkness. We are the light. Now, you can say, well, Joe, what about our growth in certain areas of knowledge? Look at our technical ability today. Well, actually, the first great scientists in the Western world were the Puritans, by the way. So if you want to look at the fathers of uh, the modern sciences uh, in the modern world, they were Puritans, they were Christians. Science today is not so concerned with new discovery as it is with social manipulation. The manipulation of the alleged evolutionary process. Now we have technical ability, certainly, but we still reach all the wrong conclusions. 
We may be able to scan this and scan that and peer at this and peer at that from a long distance away. Or we may be able to detect the movements of subatomic particles in a way that our predecessors couldn't, but we still do not reach any of the right conclusions. I recently read a little book called Race, Evolution and Behavior by a psychology professor here in Ontario, Dr. Rushton, widely used in the universities. And using a set of Darwinian assumptions, he argues that the only way one can understand all life and all human behavior, all intelligence, criminality, sexuality, is on the basis of genetic inheritance and the environment. Even though there isn't any evidence for a criminal gene or a gay gene or anything like that, he thinks if we just map, increasingly map, and develop our understanding of genes, we will be able to control society. That's the goal. This is the goal of these things. The goal of these things is to indoctrinate in terms of a new control, a new vision, a godless vision. Man's so-called enlightenment then is darkness. And it's still the controlling thought amongst these cultural elites that if we can just have more education, more knowledge, more information, all our problems will be solved. Uh, history has shown the contrary, that even when we can accomplish a remarkable things like splitting the atom, we always put it to the wrong use. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. Isn't it interesting that he says, if we're to be the light of the world, it's first required that Christ be the light of the world, so that what this means is that it's only in Christ that you and I can actually be light to anybody. It's only in and through who Christ is and all that he's taught us to be and to do that we can actually be light. We're not light by virtue of the fact that we sit in a church. We're not light by virtue of the fact that we even profess to be Christians. We are light only by virtue of the fact that we are in Jesus Christ and we live in terms of his commandments. That we live in terms of his word. We are in that sense light transmitters because as we receive light... We reflect it. So we are, in a sense, those who reflect the light. That's our purpose. Christ is the light of the world. We reflect that light. Hence, the prophet says of Christ, those who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Now, there is a problem, of course. Jesus tells us what the problem is with respect to our mission in John chapter 3. What does he say? Men love darkness rather than light why for their deeds are evil that's the Lord's analysis we're reflecting the light he's the light of the world we're reflecting the light here's the challenge men love darkness why because their deeds are evil you can hide in the dark people think you can hide there we are to be children of the light so that Christ's light so fills us that all that we are exposes darkness and draws people to the light. The primary connotation of light in Scripture, you see, is not that of knowledge, not like the light bulb coming on, not information. The primary connotation of light is the light of day, that is the presence of God. The presence of God. The problem, you see, is not man's intellect in the sense that he just needs more information. The problem is moral. It's darkness in his nature due to sin.
So we're to be salt and light. Let me wrap this up. This passage actually has reference, the reason I read Isaiah 42 to you, actually has reference to a universal covenant. To the new covenant that God is making and the covenant law which Christ declares upon the mountain. And actually, as we look at the whole story of Scripture, of God's purposes through his covenant people, we actually see the meaning of this, of what Jesus was getting at. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, we read, Yahweh has called you for a righteous purpose, to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. Now that was the original calling of Israel, to be a light to the nations. Now, in Christ Jesus, the church, the new Israel of God, is... A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Now, what would those words have conjured up in the minds of those who first heard it? Jerusalem. Set in the side of the hill. The golden city. It said that in the sunlight, Jerusalem shone like a jewel. The temple mount was there. The temple was there. You had this beautiful walled city set in the side of the mountain. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden like a jewel in the mountainside, the city of God, the light to the nations. This is the city of the king, the king whose glory he will not give to another, Isaiah 42 verse 8. So Jesus here actually restates the mission that he'd given to Israel and he states it to us as men, as his church. I will... Also make you, Isaiah 49, verse 6, light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. As the covenant people of Christ, we are now to bring this light then to the nations. And we see this mission explicitly passed to the church as the Jews in Antioch reject the message the apostles Barnabas and Paul are bringing. Just turn with me very quickly to the book of Acts. I want to show you this. Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 46, I think it is, through 47, if I've written this down correctly. Acts 13, 46 through 47. This is the conflict at Antioch. Start at verse 44. On the next Sabbath... Almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. That's the Jews. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. So here you see the functional transition of the mandate from Israel to God's church. And we see the Jews as a nation here, not Jews as people, not Hebrews as people, but the Jewish nation being rejected because they rejected the message. And now the unchanging covenant grace of God's word is to be made known to the nations by God's church. The missiologist Christopher Wright, in his book The Mission of God, which is a helpful book, 
He says this, the imagery chosen by Jesus in this passage here that we're referring to in uh, Matthew undoubtedly echoes the task given by Yahweh to Israel that they were to be a light to the nations. And in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' purpose is to portray the quality of life, character, and behavior of those who constitute the new covenant people of God, being formed around himself as the messianic servant king. Just as Israel should have let its light shine as our attraction to the nations, so the disciples of Jesus must let the light of good work shine in such a way that people will come to glorify the living God. So we have two covenantal facts set forth by the Lord Jesus. We are to be an ethical light, and there is to be the light of God's presence amongst us as a model to the nations. This is a recapitulation, actually, of Deuteronomy. Very quickly, just flick there with me. Deuteronomy, I want you to see this verse. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. There's so much in Deuteronomy, but Deuteronomy 4, verse 6 through 8. Let's start at verse 5. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them for that this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself lest you forget the things your eye has seen unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life and teach them to your children and grandchildren. So here we have a mandate for teaching the law of God, the word of God, as a light to the nations, as a model to the nations. And Christopher Wright in his book, The Mission of God, says this about this passage. Just listen closely. I really am almost done here. He says, The Old Testament law explicitly invites, even welcomes, public inspection and comparison. But the expected result of such comparison is that Israel's law will be found superior in wisdom and justice. This is a monumental claim. It grants to the nations and to the readers of this text, including ourselves, the liberty to analyze the law in comparison with other social systems, ancient and modern, and to evaluate its claim. And indeed, the humaneness and justice of Israel's overall social and legal systems have been favorably commented on by many scholars who have done the most meticulous studies of comparative ancient law, and its social relevance can still be profitably mined today. This is the law that Jesus obeyed and lived. This is the one that he fulfilled perfectly. To be a light to the world, brothers, we have to look like Christ who kept God's word totally. And we need to manifest this covenant ethic so that covenant violators all around us will see the truth of who God is. Truth is both personal and relational, and it must be seen consistently in word and deed. He also tells us that we are the light of God's presence. And in the temple of God, there was the great candlestick, the menorah, 
the seven-branch lampstand, the great menorah, opposite the bread of his presence. It symbolized the light of the presence of God. You and I now have the Holy Spirit, who is the light of the presence of God in our lives. We don't have to do this in our own strength. This is the work of the ministry and power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of his presence is in us and our obedience is our ethical response of gratitude for this great salvation. We're not salt and light so that men will look at us and say, wow, give those guys a clap. Let's applaud them. It's so that, Jesus says, they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the purpose, to be salt and light to the nations. Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah 24, 5, the earth is polluted by its inhabitants for they have transgressed teachings, overstepped ordinances, and broken the everlasting covenant. That's the situation Men are violators of God's law and of his grace. He gave us a land grant in Eden. He said, if you obey me, this is going to be yours, paradise. We rebelled against God. We were expelled from Eden. So he calls out Abraham. He gives them a land grant. He says, Canaan's going to be your land. They rebelled against God, so they're expelled from the promised land. And now... We're given a final land grant in Jesus Christ. What does he say in the Beatitudes? The meek shall inherit the earth. If we're obedient and faithful to God, our inheritance is the whole earth. To teach, Jesus says in the Great Commission, the nations, everything I have commanded you, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And as we speak it, as we live it, we will bring glory to our Father who is in heaven. In our next session, I want to start looking at what Jesus himself said about the law. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.